All right, so we continue It's a Wonderful Life uh, series as I meander and figure out what I'm trying to do each week. Sometimes uh, those of you, and this is, I don't know why this is going to happen, it's part of my, uh, my communication uh, trick. I'm trying to flash the screen now and again just to keep you on your toes. Uh, some of you know that uh, the early service here at Crosswalk is sometimes called the rough draft service. <laughs> Gives me a chance to see what works, see what doesn't. So if you go back and listen to the teaching uh, from last week and you were at the service, you'll notice there are some significant differences, particularly toward the end, because I wasn't happy with how things landed and uh, modified some things. Uh, but today, the late service isn't getting any of this, so you're getting the bonus track uh, for, uh, for this week. And, and they are either, they're not getting it, which either is a really good thing <laughs> or a really bummer thing uh, for them. So what I've been trying to do with this series, we started off talking about uh, disclaimers, which is just simply acknowledging uh, that the movie itself uh, had some problems with it because it was released in 1946 and has a lot of 1946 in it. Sensibilities about the world, some insensitivities towards some things that we would never do or say anymore. Uh, never portray anymore. Uh, and I wanted to point out that the Christmas story itself also has a lot of problems, some historical critical problems uh, that I've ruined Christmas with in years past as I've acknowledged these things. Uh, some incongruencies, some things that just don't add up, don't make sense. Uh, historically, uh, some of the gospel accounts don't align. Uh, some of the theological motifs don't really fit with the Jewish tradition. Those are all deeply problematic. And so one of the reasons I wanted to just say that is just as a disclaimer to recognize uh, there are some problems here. The question that I raise is, do we then throw out uh, It's a Wonderful Life altogether because it has problems? And should we throw out the Christmas story altogether because it has problems? Which really, by extension, brings us to a bigger question for ourselves. Do we throw out our story and ourselves? Because we have problems. We have chapters we wish we could rewrite. We have words we wish we could bring back. Attitudes that we hope nobody ever uh, knows about or, or thoughts. And the answer, of course, is no. That life is this all-encompassing thing uh, that has its own issues, and yet God is with us all along the way. Uh, that's part of the beauty of this time of year, is recognizing that. And then last week uh, was all about uh, suckfests and suckmeisters <laughs> and talking about the sucky seasons of life because that's a real thing. And I wanted to acknowledge that there, are, uh, there were sucky things that happened uh, in It's a Wonderful Life that were the premise of the story. The guy's wanted to take his own life. He's experienced so much uh, suckiness uh, from just life that happens, from decisions other people made from some suckmeisters who were doing some horrible things to him. And the Christmas story is similar. Uh, there, there are some really sucky elements of this story. For Mary and Joseph, it was hard. The story is hard if you just read it plainly. Uh, this, was, this was not this wonderful Hallmark uh, movie thing. Um, it's, it was tough. And frankly, the reason why I wanted to acknowledge that with the film and with the text is because we have our own seasons of suck uh, in our lives, and some of you may be in one right now, I don't know. Some of you I do know, uh, and it's hard. It's hard to go through this season. Uh, there are some people at Crosswalk right now where they are not feeling Christmas at all because of what they've been through uh, this year. The idea of uh, talking about Mary having a child, 
when they have some intersection issues with uh, either some children issues or whatnot, uh, it's very hard. Uh, we have had people lose people this year. This season is hard because this is the first Christmas for them that they are not with their loved ones. That sucks. That's just part of life. But the wonderful reality, this is the part that I didn't land well, at least in this service uh, last week so much, and I wish I could go back and rewrite it. That's my disclaimer for last week. But the reality is as chaotic and as sucky as life can be, there is this other greater thing, which is the presence of God. Christ is always bigger. Uh, the Gospel of John in its prologue talks about the light was coming into the world, and the darkness did not recognize it, and it would not overcome it. The light is always there. The love of God is always present, always supporting us, always with us to get us through the suck. And I believe that because I've been through it. Sometimes we don't know it's happened until long after the fact and we look back and we recognize there were people in place that God was using at the time, unbeknownst to us perhaps, that were helping us and supporting us, buoying us. They'd been wooed by God to help us, and those people said yes. Today I want to talk about relationships, and I maintain that relationships are everything. And the first question I have for you, uh, in the story of It's a Wonderful Life, I want to know why didn't George's clients turn on him? Because you know the final straw here for him is... His Uncle Billy, uh, in all of his delight over Harry's uh, being celebrated in Washington as a war hero, he's dancing into the bank celebrating <coughs> all this stuff. He sees the villain, the suckbuster, Mr. Potter, and he's got in his, uh, in his newspaper the year-end deposit, which in today's currency is somewhere around $130,000, so it's no small amount of money. And uh, he's so excited to kind of rub it in Mr. Potter's face uh, that Harry is a war hero. Uh, that he accidentally uh, puts the deposit in Potter's lap and then goes up to the bank teller and doesn't have the deposit, doesn't know where it is, and all of a sudden, somebody's on the hook for this missing deposit. Uh, George goes to Mr. Potter because he's the only guy rich enough to bail him out of a jam like this, and instead of honoring you know, this at Christmas, especially since he knew exactly where that money was, and in a sense, the money had been deposited right into the, the bank president's lap. Instead of honoring that and you know, saying, hey, no worries, Merry Christmas, this once, you know, instead he issues a warrant for George's arrest, which sends him spinning, and that's what led him to the edge of the bridge to make this decision. Um, my question is, we, I hope you've seen the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm gonna spoil the ending. But at the end of the movie, um, all these friends come to the rescue of George. And they come with money, whatever little money they had. Mary had made some phone calls, uh, let them know what was going on. Something had happened and all of a sudden, within an hour, all these people are flooding in to George and Mary's home. And there's some music playing, there's a makeshift offering basket, and everybody's just dumping in cash. It's this wonderful thing. Now, George was happy before that, which we'll get to in just a minute. But my question is this. Most of these people who were coming, there were some that were childhood friends, known George for a long time, but a lot of these people that showed up that night were part of the building loan. They got their mortgage through the building loan. In other words, their investments were tied up in the building alone. And the word on the street that was going around was George is guilty of malfeasance, that he had somehow uh, taken money for himself, 
maybe spent a little bit of it on Violet, his childhood friend, uh, who everybody uh, was aware of. They didn't do anything, but the word was on the street on that. I think about our day and age, if such a word went out, uh, and all of a sudden it's on social media that some bank president, you know, is guilty of, you know, make it a bigger amount, um, you know, a million dollar, you know, took stole a million dollars embezzled or whatever for his own thing. I think people would cancel him, right? I think they would immediately say, I don't think so. So my question is, is why didn't that happen? Why didn't the people bring pitchforks and torches instead of an offering to bail the guy out who may be taking them into financial ruin? It's an interesting question. And if you've seen the movie, you already know the answer. That the reason why these people didn't bring pitchforks and they brought their piggy banks was because they loved George. And they knew that George loved them. Now, George didn't get the dreams that he thought he wanted. He thought he was going to travel the world, go to school, build stuff in big cities. He got a different dream that turned out to be a much better dream. And in the process of his, his going through, he was, he was really good about expressing his, his struggle with this tension of living a particular life, which he ends up saying it's a wonderful life, but, but at the same time, it's not the one he dreamt of. And he admitted that and confessed that throughout the movie in different ways, showed his frustration, which I think is so healthy. That's a great model uh, for especially men who don't do emotions well at all. And so George is honest about these things, but all the way through, He's kind to the clients, you know? Uh, he's, he's looking out for the taxi driver who can't get a loan through Mr. Potter, but he makes a good enough buck to be able to afford a mortgage so he doesn't have to figure out how to come up with 20% for a down payment, which was kind of the standard of the day. Uh, all these people who otherwise would be renting for the rest of their lives, now they get a chance at the American dream, owning a piece of real estate, that can grow and, and value over time, perhaps be passed on and, and all these things. Well, George was that guy. And, and the opportunities where he could have been uh, racially insensitive to people, he didn't do that. Uh, the Italian, right, Mr. Martini. Um, in that day and age, Mr. Martini would not have been treated well because he was Italian. And yet, uh, George and Mary, they celebrate the fact that he gets his new house. Why didn't these people turn? It's because George loved them and befriended them all throughout. They knew whatever they heard about this you know, embezzlement was absolute nonsense because they knew George's character and the reason they knew George's character was because of relationships. And what saved George from the brink? Relationships. As he's going and seeing what life would have been like had he never been born, He's recognizing not just his impact on the life, sure, that was it, but he's also, he's hurting with these people. He's seeing, you know, what has happened to these people because his, his piece wasn't on the board to play and it meant suffering for others and that hurt him as well. So when he, when he finally, you know, wakes up from this dream uh, or whatever it was, uh, he's filled with joy because his people are back not just his wife and kids, but everybody. It's all reset, even with the mess that he's facing. Why is he rejoicing? Long before he knew the money was coming in. It's because he got the relationships back uh, that meant so much to him. Relationships are everything. And in fact, that shows up in the Christmas story in spades. So uh, 
I'm sharing with you from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. Uh, this is the part of the Christmas story. Jesus has been born, and right after that, in that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, of course. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day, in the city of David, a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. I want to point out a couple things, just briefly. First of all, uh, kind of a couple Captain Obvious things. So they get this Heavenly Host Choir uh, concert. Uh, it's about to come up in the next slide. Uh, where they're seeing an, an angel of God, however that may have been experienced, and they're terrified. Why would they be terrified? Well, one, because this is not common. And if something like this happened, I think we'd all freak out, right? <laughs> this is weird, and it's scary, and it's happening. But there's a deeper theological reason as well. Uh, that people in antiquity, they believe that if you had an encounter with God like this, with the holy, you were toast. So one of the prophets and Isaiah, who's often quoted at times like this, he has this vision of angels and, and the heavenly court. And what is his initial reaction? Woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips. He felt like because of the, the disclaimers in his life, he was going to be smited immediately by God. So that the angels, you know, we in America, we're so convinced of our rights and freedoms, like we deserve everything, <laughs> you know, because that's the country that we build. Everybody gets access to everything that we think, well, if, if Zsa Zsa got an angelic choir, then I should get an angelic choir too. And we'll get mad if we don't get one, you know what I mean? But this, this story is not now. Uh, it's in antiquity. And the other thing I just want to point out, you see, the angel is saying, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. That's a big deal because nobody brought the shepherds anything ever. These guys were low on the totem pole, working the graveyard shift, not because they loved the, the flexibility of their schedule. <laughs> They're working the graveyard shift because nobody else wanted it and they got stuck with it. It was cold, damp, smelly, and everybody knew it. Everywhere they went, they smelled like sheep and everybody let them know that. They were low on the totem pole, and everybody treated them like that. So they weren't the ones that God was for, at least the way people thought. They were losers uh, in our own vernacular. And yet, the angel is saying, this is for you. This is for you. And, by extension, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people, not just some of the people. Because back then, it was just sort of naturally assumed that God was mainly for a few. He may have been for all of Israel in a very generalized sense, but he's really for the rabbis, he's really for the prophets, he's really for the leaders. And if you didn't have much in their way of thinking, it meant that God had not blessed you. They experienced uh, the, the wrong uh, impression that we still have today, that if you have material blessing, it means that God must really favor you. However, <laughs> there's another side to that, which we don't articulate so much, at least not out loud, which is, if it's not going so well for you, what have you done? Why hasn't God blessed you? And that way of thinking is completely wrong. So these guys are getting this choir, 
And it means more than just a cool concert. It means they're valued by God, which is huge for them in that day. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. Where are these guys right now? Any idea? Where are they? Are they in the shopping mall, gas station? Where are they? They're on a hill in the middle of nowhere, near Bethlehem, right? They're not at the temple. They're not in the high court. They're not in the palace. They're outside. God is showing up in this incredible display, not in the temple where the religious leaders are, but out in the open. That's remarkable. So what happens? So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And so my question for you is, what did the shepherds' experience communicate about God's view of all people? Uh, because we're supposed that's what Luke wants us to see. We don't know the veracity of this story exactly. Nobody had video footage of this stuff. Luke is giving us this story because he's wanting to clue us in. The whole thing is an allusion to what is going to happen later in Jesus' ministry. And so what do we see at the beginning of this new expression of the presence of God? We see this new expression in a powerful way coming in for the least of these, not the greatest of these. He's coming to the shepherds. Uh, he's, he's guiding Mary and Joseph. You know, no room in the end. So where does he end up? He gets born in the worst possible place you can imagine. This is a rest stop on I-5 on Thanksgiving weekend. I mean, this is about as bad as it can get, right? And that's where all this is happening. Why? Why is Luke giving us this story? Because he wants us to see that God is really showing favor on people who never thought they had favor. It's flipping the tables. It's changing the paradigm. And we will see that reflected all throughout Jesus' ministry. So Jesus grows up full of the Spirit of God. What does he do? Particularly in Luke, more than the other Gospels. Luke is a physician. Luke is more interested in the least of these. So you see more emphasis given to women, orphans, widows, uh, than the other Gospels, and children in general. Uh, Luke, again and again, has Jesus helping women. <laughs> uh, lifting up what Mary is a heroine in Luke's story. Joseph is the hero in Matthew. There's a reason for that. It's because of Luke's orientation toward everything. He's wanting to say, look, these women matter to God. And so you have stories of that happening throughout Luke. The woman who'd been bleeding for years and years and blew all her money on medical stuff to no avail. Luke, she's healed by Jesus. She who didn't have uh, any uh, potential to get help from the temple now is being healed by Jesus out in the open. Favor from God. A widow who lost her only son, he's raised from the dead by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus cares about the widow. Uh, let the little children come unto me. That's Luke. Because Jesus wanted to see us welcoming kids who were, it was much worse than today's kind of a, uh, anachronistic vernacular where we say, 
Uh, children should be seen and not heard. You know, that's kind of an older generation kind of a thing. Um, now it's children run the run the show and ruin our homes. You know, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> not exactly. But anyway, uh, back then it was much worse. It wasn't even seen and not heard. It was just you don't really matter until you come of age. And so for children to get that kind of audience uh, with this anointed one, it was massive. All I'm saying is that the whole story that Luke's wanted to paint right from the very beginning is that God really wanted relationship with all people and made that as obvious as possible from the origin story itself. And relationships even mattered within the story. So where does Mary find support? Not from Joseph, not, not right away anyway. He goes to Elizabeth, another person who shouldn't be having a child because of her, uh, her advanced age. And so they support each other in this. Relationships matter. Jesus, when he grows, he doesn't go Lone Ranger. He's with his boys all the time. And women, by the way, it was a much larger group than the 12. And some of these women, uh, Mary the Tower, we know her as Mary Magdalene. She was right up there with the Apostle Peter in terms of her authority in the, in the early church. Uh, this, is, this is Jesus who wants to be with people, to learn with people, to engage people. And it was through some of those relationships that Jesus himself learned. We don't think about that. Oh, by the way, I forgot to flip the screen here. Is Jesus mirroring the love of God, God's people here. It was in relationship with the Syrophoenician woman that Jesus learned about his own prejudice. He had not gotten that yet, hanging around Israelite guys or Israelite women. It was only when he stepped out and had a conversation and heard things come out of his mouth which did not reflect the love of God. That's when he realized, I still have some learning to do. Was taught because of the relationship with others, even Jesus, which all the more. <laughs> How important is it for us to be in relationship where we grow? So my question for you today uh, is, who has loved you like Jesus? And have you thanked them? Uh, and maybe this is somebody from your past. Maybe they're dead. Uh, that's possible. Uh, and that doesn't mean that this question uh, is no longer relevant. Actually, your gratitude toward those who loved you well at those key moments still matters. Uh, we don't know exactly what our connection is between life here and now and what comes next. But if we are connected somehow by the presence of God, who knows you know, where, those, where those prayers and offerings of thanksgiving are going to go. But I do know this, that when we are grateful for those people who, who were Jesus to us, it does something for us. We are more filled again because our gratitude is topped up. And we're more likely to act in Jesus-like ways when we reflect on how people have been Jesus-like to us. So I want you to think about that in your life. Uh, who's been Jesus to you? Who's, who's shown you love? And if you got a problem with the name Jesus, that's cool. Who has been lovely to you? Who has represented grace to you? And have you been grateful for that? Can, I don't mean to shame or guilt you on any of this. I'm just saying this is an opportunity for us to reflect and recognize that was a relationship that mattered uh, to us. Sometimes they're great surprises. Um, we never know. And then the question is, who have you loved like Jesus, and how did it affect you? This isn't an opportunity for you to pat yourself on the back for being the hero <laughs> in Jesus' name. 
This is the opportunity for you to reflect and realize that when we love other people well, like Jesus did, uh, we, are, we are not then experiencing a shortage of love. Love is not pie. When you give away love, there, that doesn't mean there's less love for anybody else. It's just the opposite. Like Jesus had the conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria, another profound uh, statement from the Gospel of John about God's in inclusivity and valuing of this would have been a hated woman uh, of ill repute from her town. I mean, the whole thing, you know, just as a one more communication about uh, how much God cares about everybody as Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. And what does he say? Uh, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, uh, you would ask me to draw you water and I would draw you water from an everlasting spring an eternal spring That's love when we love with the love of God. We do not run dry In fact, I want to just take a very brief aside and suggest to you that if you're feeling burned out particularly <coughs> doing loving compassionate things Spend some time thinking about that talk to somebody who you can just process that with because there's a missing link in there. I've known people that uh, have given themselves to very good causes and have gotten fried. Well, I got fried. At the end of COVID, I was toast and needed to take time away for a while to recoup. But I've known other people as well. And I've been here long enough to see before and after stories of people who were in it and doing very good things, but something wasn't right. And then over time, something shifted. Sometimes it was because there was a break. Other things, I don't know all the variables that were at play. But now some of these same people uh, do the same kind of work and even more, but with joy. <laughs> it's a wonderful sight to behold. It's transformative. And so all my encouragement there for you is, just as a little bonus sermon for you today, is if you're feeling fried on, if you have compassion fatigue, Listen to that. Talk to somebody who knows about that. I'd be happy to process stuff with you and ask you questions and poke around with you on that stuff uh, because something's not quite right. And it could be a boundary thing. It could be you need to follow Jesus out to a camping trip and catch your breath for a while before entering in. Could Yeah, it could be you've, you've allowed us, you've taken on so much compassion stuff that you have no room uh, to recharge. Anyway, that's a relationship thing. Uh, your relationship to the very thing that you love may be compromised and maybe your other relationships that matter a lot need to be fostered even with yourself. So that's a freebie for you. I came across this thing that I wanted to share with you uh, today and it is a story that showed up as part of a daily reading uh, that I get. I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Rohr. He is a Franciscan friar and he has a daily devotional thing that I read all the time. He's one of the most influential um, thinkers and writers in my life and uh, very expansive in his theology. And, and this particular uh, thing has everything to do with relationship in unexpected ways and what relationship does for us. And by the way, I'm going to butcher some of these names and some of these words because they're foreign and I suck at, at foreign languages. So here we go. Arab-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye recalls a transformative, unexpected occasion of generous acceptance, and I'll go by extension, a new relationship that changed everything. So I quote, wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate A4 understands any Arabic, 
please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate A4 was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly. Shudoa shubiduk habibti. Stani shway minfadlik shubit siwi. The minute she heard any word she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment. I said, no, we're fine. You'll get there just later. Who is picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother and would ride next to her. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad and he spoke and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> then I thought, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them <coughs> chat with her? This all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamal cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar <laughs> and smiling. There is no better cookie. And then the airline broke out free beverages. Two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing, with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around the gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in that gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. This was a story of relationship, of what happens when we just choose to open up ourselves to the other as we sense the nudge of God in obvious ways, like a terminal uh, announcer calling you to gate A4, or the quiet nudge as we're going through the grocery store or making our way out into the concert or whatever your journey is gonna take you. Uh, may you have the sensibility uh, to hear the calm, still, loving voice of God. And as it woos you toward your best, woos you forward to maturity and love, as it may woo you to love somebody else in powerful ways, may you say yes to that. And may you experience the joy of being in the flow of the Spirit of God that showed up 2,000 years ago for everybody, really everybody, and inspired everyone to love neighbor as self just as much as they love God. Let's pray together. So God, as we wind up uh, this time together, uh, may we be inspired by at least one element 
uh, in these stories. Maybe it's George who woke up and realized that whatever dream he had, it paled in comparison to the dream he was living. Or he was loved and had the opportunity to love people in return. He didn't make all the money in the world. It was tough. But he had love and he had friends. And that was worth far more. Or maybe it's Mary and Elizabeth and the shepherds or Jesus and the women that he healed and helped. Maybe we're inspired by them and want to follow suit because we're here still talking about it. Or maybe it's this poet who came to the rescue of a woman who couldn't speak English. And by the end of the story, it's not one of tragedy and wailing, but weeping with tears of joy and connectedness and love. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be a part of that story. <clears throat> who doesn't want to be in relationship with people that are loving and affirming and, and receive that and <clears throat> give it in return. So God, inspire us with your spirit because this is your stuff. This is your wheelhouse. You are the one who calls us and woos us forward in these ways. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see what we need to be doing. Hearts soft enough to say yes, to take the risk of love. May we be fully yours, and may you use us fully in a world that really, really needs more love. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.